Thunder. We're talking Dice Masters. The beauty of the underlying mechanics, the hidden complexities, and the strategy, tactics, and decisions of competitive play. If you're just starting the game or have been here since the first set, hopefully you'll find something in this show that'll do you some good. So shake up your bag, reconnoiter your opponent, and get ready to roll. Welcome back, folks, to Season 1, Episode 2 of Rollin' Thunder. And do we have one dense nugget of Dice Master's deliciousness in store for you today. You feeling any better this week, Lucan? Uh, yeah, I'm back on my feet. Well, I'm afraid that sludge rolled downhill, and now I'm feeling a little bit wobbly myself. Yeah, I hope you get well too, especially because we got one big weekend coming up. That's right. Thank you for mentioning that. For those of you just joining the program, a group of committed Dice Masters enthusiasts, ourselves included, are hosting local tournaments across the globe on or around March 9th, 2019. Our aim is to replicate the competitive WKO experience in a fun, easygoing atmosphere. So the local TOs get to choose their formats to tailor the event to their local community. But the top two finishers from each local event will qualify to play in an online tournament, the winner of which will receive one of the factory box sets I took home from Worlds this year. So, if your store might be interested in joining the event, contact me at arge at rollandthunder.xyz. No G. Yeah, while we still have time. For those of you curious about how to play Dice Masters Online... You can find links in the show notes for this episode at rollandthunder.xyz forward slash 102 for season one, episode two. And you'll also find all the team lists and related material we will be discussing with our upcoming special guest there too. Once more, you can find the show notes at rollandthunder.xyz forward slash 102. Okay, speaking of our special guest, are you ready for this, Lucan? You betcha. All right, let's get to it. Today on the show, we'd like to welcome the multiple UK WKO winning terror of the United Kingdom, and now the Bane of Canada, a top four finisher in this year's World Championship and the only player to win national championships on two different continents. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you your 2016 United Kingdom champion and also winner of the 2018 Canadian National Championship, the Intercontinental Champion, Ben Said Scott. That was that was far more grandiose than I deserve. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mr. Scott. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. All right. Well, you know, Lucan and I have been uh, looking forward to having you on the show for a while now. So yeah, I've been looking forward to you guys putting out a podcast. So. <laughs> well, as we were mentioning, uh, Apple Podcasts has been giving us, uh, you know, a terrible hard time recently. We, I know. Yeah. You know, I thought first it was just because of the X Y Z and the name. You know, they probably looked at that mm-hmm. and was like, eh, "That's a bit sketchy." But I really think it's about the apostrophe. You know, the internet hates apostrophes. <laughs> I mean, we can land a rocket ship on a tiny little meteor hurtling We've through space. We've already been down this road. I'm noticing a theme, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. Before we go down that huge dark rabbit hole, uh, let's talk about your personal history with this game of Dice Masters. Like, what, what drew you to it? Did you come to it from another game like Magic? Or, or how, did, how did that all start? Yeah, not really. I was a board gamer a little bit just before it came out so like maybe six months or so into board gaming i i think i'd done one magic 
draft event sometime in my life it was it was before way before dice masters but i went along and everyone was really mean right. and i lost every game um <laughs> and no one was helpful at all they just told me my deck was terrible <sighs> but dice masters itself it got good buzz and i was just in my friendly local gaming store um and they had a copy of the avx starter set lucky you yeah so i bought that and then couldn't find any sealed packs and was one of those people who were like scrolling the internet Ooh, this <laughs> this place might have like one pack so when we started playing we were just playing with the starter set basically um but we had one friend who for some reason had everything from the first set oh wow so he let us play with some of his cards apart from gobby which he just smacked us with the whole time <laughs> and right. uh, i don't like losing very much so the fact that he kept beating me with it kept me wanting to play it right. so i guess Losing made me want to play more. <laughs> the sadist in you brought up. Yeah, 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 for real. And then, yeah, so at uh, the first UK Nats event I went to was also another catalyst. So before that, I kind of wasn't mixing sets at all. I had a really hard line up until this event um, where I wouldn't mix sets, let alone IPs. <laughs> so the first team I built, which was a mixed set, was AVX mixed with UXM. Right. Um, and I went along to my first UK Nats and like got profoundly destroyed by like blue eyes gobby teams. So what you're and running, that also you're, made me. You were running the, the rare Colossus, was that uh, your, yeah, your, your so rare, rare Colossus and the She Hulk that when it attacks, it's it was like a spinning team. Oh, cool. Did it did it have the uh, that that promo? Oh uh, uh, yeah, was uh, Marvel Girl the yeah. humanity? The Marvel Girl. No, we didn't get any of the promos oh. um, for ages. But no, it was similar. It was like the She Hulk that spins down opposing characters. Oh, okay. Um, I also had Sarina. Right. So I ran that as well. But yeah, it was a really. It wasn't. It was a pretty janky team. <laughs> um, and yeah, I didn't have any of the D and D stuff or Blue Eyes stuff or, or Yu Gi Oh stuff from their first sets in my team. Got so. it. And was that because you're a comic purist? I mean, were you, are you a comic collector? I don't know. As well? what it was. I'm just a just stubborn. I don't know. <laughs> it's so, stupidity. So, so, <laughs> stubborn sadist. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it was. Well, I also was playing with my friends, right? Who so and they were they were mixing sets, but they weren't really. We didn't really have an idea of like anything like meta because none of us had ever played a competitive right. game seriously before. So we were all like. I don't know. We're, we're quite good at this game. We can beat like each other. We know all the cool cards. Right. We know about Gobby, but you don't know about Gobby until you play like <laughs> Gobby versus Blue Eyes. Right. Right. Turn four kill or whatever. It is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny when we got into this. We were came from the comic book side of things, and uh, I looked at uh, the Yu-Gi-Oh stuff, and I thought I'm not going to touch that. But then when I actually played it. I love the mechanics of that set, so it didn't take us too long to come around to it. But our initial mindset was, no mixing. That's just that's just wrong. You know. Yeah, I think I think everyone <laughs> kind of had that until you switched into the competitive scene. Right. Yeah. So I, I I definitely had that. How much math do you think you you use when you play the game? I mean, like when you sit down and, and face an opponent, are you are you doing any calculation? And if so, you know, what are what what's kind of things that are running through your your head? Yeah, it's difficult for me to be like this is the specific math I use because I don't really tend to do that. Mm -hmm. I tend to go off much more of a gut instinct kind of what are they doing? What would I do in their situation? I always play, but yeah, there's there's three things I think that are important math wise. Then they have, you have to understand probabilities. You also have to understand how to estimate results. And noticing trends was my other thing. They were my three math-based things you have to do during game. So yeah, probabilities is quite obvious because you're playing a dice game. But there's some subtleties, right? Because right. you have to... If your opponent rolls dice more and more, they're more likely to get the outcome they want. 
But if you're forcing them to keep re-rolling, you're also more likely to get the outcome you want. So it's interesting to kind of think about stuff like, uh, so I mentioned an example of Kryptonite versus Cold Gun. So just on the face of it, Kryptonite has a one in two chance of getting a blanking face, right? Whereas Cold Gun only has a one in three chance because it's on the burst and double burst. Right. But because you have to roll Cold Gun less because you can just leave it in the field, it's actually probably a more effective blanker. If it's out there, it's ready to be used. Exactly, yeah. So it's understanding stuff like that is very important. It's also important when you're kind of thinking about forcing an attack or blocking how often you want to clear a field. Mm-hmm. So stuff like the new fetid bloat drone, which has deadly and everything has to block. If you can keep clearing their whole field and make them roll every time, yep. they are more likely to miss a roll. Yep. So I think probability in working that out is very important. Right. And then, of course, you have to weigh. I mean, the strategic thing in there that's interesting is you got to ask yourself, it can also give them the energy they need to get to that eight cost stomp, but that might wreck you, you know? So, yeah, that's the, I think probably the best teams have always kind of thrived on being able to roll with the punches. So, one of the reasons Yanti was so effective was if you missed a Yanti, you could buy another Yanti and increase your probability that way. Yep. And if you got a ton of energy, you could always buy more things, which is how you win the game with Yanti. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. I, I, I go down this math path because one of the things I think it helped me early on was Nick Pham down in Dysonon. He wrote an article a long time ago. I don't know if you remember him reading about just like how to PXG. And Nick was one of these guys who came from engineering, was just a, and just is a very mathematical mind. And he had worked it out kind of as a mathematical science. Like you want to have one more sidekick die in your use pile than the number of masks you have in your reserve to PXG perfectly. And he had worked it out exactly I'll try to link in the show notes to, to his article because it was great, especially really good for new players who are learning how to PXG. But it was this kind of mathematical precision that I thought was interesting. It was different than the way I play the game, but certainly really effective. Yeah, I think learning PXG is one of the most difficult things to do and mm-hmm. one of the things that makes you kind of step up a level in understanding how your dice bag works yep. ramp and churn uh, how cycling works and how important it is to not break ramp because it's again that's all about probability right because you want to increase the probability that you're going to draw the dice you just bought the next turn for me like back in the day when pxg was still a thing i remembered like never break your ramp never break your ramp but then that one turn comes when you roll one mask and you have like six other energy and you secretly go like yes i can buy my jinzo now and i have the excuse to do it you know yeah but it was kind of a little bit like um what that kind of reminds me of is the resurrection ring resurring ramp and that was very very technical and i never i'd never liked that because that was always you had to be so structured yeah you had to have just always five in your used buy once you had six change one out then prep it and once it got off you it was really hard to get back yeah one of the things you mentioned about like this math was estimating. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's, that's something I think a lot of players have trouble with. Yeah, they do. Um, and if you're talking about what I do math the most during gameplay, it's estimating. And why that's important is you always have to have a rough idea of how much damage potential you have on your board and also how much damage potential your opponent has on their board. Whether you can risk missing or re-rolling a character dice to get some energy, knowing that they can't swing through next turn. And if you're good at estimating, if you can say, I roughly have a good chance of getting 20 damage, you're more likely to stop, count it all out, do the actual math, and then you'll know if you can win or not. And I know a lot of people kind of roll their dice, work out what they're going to do. They have a plan already in their head and don't think about the fact that, hey, if I did this weird play, I could get 
game here. They actually win, yeah. And while I play, I'm always working out how my opponent can win. So I often realize when they've made a mistake. Right. Um, and in, in friendly games, I'm always encouraging them to tell them this is how you can win this way. I often do it after their turn's finished and it's my turn. So right. I can't win. <laughs> right. Um, I was talking about Bard, yeah, because Bard, this was really important because mm. Bard was very, very mathy. Math yep. Yeah, I remember how surprising it was right at the beginning. You're like, wait, what? Four characters? Wait, I'm dead? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then you have to work out because there was a variety of ways to play Bard and how to get him through. But you could sneak some insane amount of damage through really quickly. Right. And people would always badly estimate how much damage actually was on their board. In fact, well, while we're speaking Bard, let's, your 2016 UK Nats team, the one that you took to the title, was a Bard team, correct? Yeah. I think yeah. you had, what, Elthief, Constantine, DeWiz, Oracle, and then yep. what, you had Breaker on there, I believe. He was the... Breaker, he, Professor to, X. Because you were running Imprisoned Magic Missile, right? And Breaker was there yep. to, just in case your opponent bought your, your Imprisoned, I'm assuming? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, so we'd been running this hulk bard team for a little while so one of my friends um back in the uk who i played with quite a lot is uh andy spug uh-huh. who um is currently the c central european Nats champion shout out to andy yeah but he'd been playing um this hulk bard team and uh i can't remember what i was running was i was running something enough? else and like i just couldn't beat that team pretty sure it wasn't mask ring no i didn't like mask ring ever i can see well that. i just don't like the the style of play that is you seem more of an aggressive Kind of, I'm looking at your teams, and in general, they seem to be a little bit of control, but pretty, pretty aggro in terms of. I'm yeah, so still of... talking about probabilities, I guess. I, the reason I don't like Mask Ring or things like that is their reliance on Parallax, which is my least favorite card in the game. So, what is it about Parallax that you loathe so much? Uh, so, I understand Parallax from a point of view, yeah, like to get that one dice you need that one time. But I, I don't like people just re-rolling for stuff. I don't want to sit there and watch you roll a bunch of dice. <laughs> for the most part i'm not a huge parallax fan but i, I appreciate it when i watched junior play with that oh, card man. he he was the master in terms of just knowing when and how much and how to do it he could really just pound you into the ground with that card <laughs> yeah so it's a bit weird actually i'm gonna just contradict myself really badly here but parallax takes away the chance in the game mm-hmm. which i don't like but also on the other hand i don't like the feeling i have when i play against ring teams that they just got lucky <laughs> right, right. they roll oh they just happen to roll five masks and i know it's not that because yeah they obviously have to build their team with enough mask characters and you do that with um multiple man yeah, yeah. Uh, so you, obviously you design your team that way Right. But I, I just, I can't shake the feeling that, hey, you just rolled a bunch <laughs> of lucky masks. It's another reason why I don't like Human Torch as well. Because with that card, I'm just like, you just got lucky and you rolled a bunch of characters. It's not, <laughs> it's not fair. All right, but I'm curious to see, you know, because it's funny, because the, the Hulk being in this, Green Goliath being in this bar team, that's a little bit of an unusual so, yeah, so Spug was running this Bard Hulk team. So that was the original team. And it was very similar to the team I ended up with without Imprisoned. He was using Polymorph. So he had uh, to get to Hulk to get the board clear to get the Bard through. That was his Yeah, thing, and right? he was relying on Hulk. But mm-hmm. it was really strong. And I played up against it with a bunch of different teams. Couldn't beat it. So I eventually was just like, okay, I'm going to run this team as well. Mm-hmm. So we were running that team back and forth. And so about three weeks before UK Nats, we went to a store with a bunch of newer players. They just started playing and they didn't really know 
how to PXG properly or anything like that. Right. And one guy was running in prison because all they had was, you know, AVX in a bit of AVX and a ton of UXM because that set got really overprinted. Yeah. And this guy was running imprisoned. He was playing against one of my other friends who was running a Kobold Bard team, Kobold and Captain Marvel Bard. And yeah. he used in prison one time and captured his whole field and he had about <laughs> 10 dice there. Yeah. I was like, wow, okay. And then I, <laughs> yeah. I looked at my team and was like, yeah, none of these characters have fielding costs. Yeah. Because of the prevalence of PXG, you had to have Oracle, and that was almost a yeah. must-have at that time. But Oracle, the great thing about Oracle was that she had zero fielding costs. Mm -hmm. Same with Dwarf Wizard. His fielding costs were really low. Yep. And same with Bard. His fielding costs were quite low. So basically everything on that team had a really low fielding cost apart from Hulk. Right. With Hulk, you wanted it to get it on level one or level two anyway. Right. So yeah, you could capture Bard as well. So this comes back to maths and noticing trends, right? So you just start noticing the trend of, hey, the meta is all about these really low fielding cost cards. Yep. How good is Imprisoned? <laughs> yep. So I started running Imprisoned and was like, then I took it back to Spug. And he was like, wow, yeah, that's, that's really good. That's, that makes... <laughs> so as we played it during UK Nats, we were like just not buying Hulk because it was just really unnecessary. You just needed to sure. prison. Yep. It just slowed you down, actually, right? Yeah. And a similar kind of thing happened um, for Can Nats as well. It was because James were running the Gold Dragon with Breath Weapon 3. And that was really effective because it kept clearing the field. Right. Because most of the pieces everyone had only had three defense at max. So stuff like Scarlet Witch, stuff like Shriek all have three defense yep so breath weapon three suddenly becomes really meta viable and you can look at that and notice that trend and be like well if i put this on my team i can always clear the field so interestingly enough practicing for an upcoming golden tournament gold dragon is nowhere near as effective because they had bigger defenses so dwarf wizard has a bigger defense you're the second person in a row who's mentioned that i mean patrick bought that uh common nick fury on his team just for that reason because he's got 5d and survives gold dragon yeah so it's interesting Noticing trends is, that's what the meta is, yep. essentially. It's someone finding a trend that works very effectively, then someone else realizing, why is that team so effective? How can I counter it? Right. And I'm just looking at this team. It's interesting. Like a couple, we both came to, I built another team similar, uh, right around the same period of time while I was going to US Nats. I built kind of a, a version of this with, with the Super Rare Ultraman. And, and, and the card that scared me the most looking at it, just in terms of playing, was this Imprisoned. And I figured, well, if this is scaring me so much, there must be something really good here. If it's terrifying me, it's got to be great. So, so I started playing it a lot more, and I, I found my way to Breaker as well, which is a great card that a lot of people still don't use, and and actually really useful today. You know, if you're going to face Green Devil Mask or things like that. Yeah, and interestingly enough, though, Imprisoned has also worked the other way because Imprisoned doesn't work that well in modern. Yes. Uh, so if you do a Golden Tournament now especially Golden Escalation, where they've rotated out Oracle and Dwarf is in Shriek. Actually, most things have a fueling cost, so Imprison is nowhere near as effective. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So that's one of the things I love about the game. It's constantly metamorphosizing, and you've got to stay on your toes. Yeah, so with Ultraman, Ultraman kind of became a bigger thing. So people started putting end of days on their team. Yep. So I did that variant where you used that squirrel girl to kind of put a bunch of characters out in the field. Mm -hmm. And you could use the fact that you had end of days, still run Ultraman, and still be effective. Yep. Um, so like Patrick was doing with Nick Fury, that's what I was doing with Squirrel Girl. Squirrel how Girl. can I use this? Yeah, how can I use the fact that everyone's countering Ultraman in a way to make the most out of Ultraman? Yep, that's really cool. Yeah, I, yeah, I love stuff like that. I love talking about how cards interact. Because, I yeah, understanding 
um, what the meta is enables you to beat the meta. Absolutely. And if you're going to be bring a meta team somewhere, be prepared to to deal with the counters that are coming, you know, because they are coming if you're, you're going to play meta. Which is kind of why Worlds was like so wild, right? There was nothing, there was nothing to go off. So I, I built a team that could definitely beat the anti and then didn't really run up against any anti. Yep. So yeah, if you call the meta wrong as well, it also goes the other way, right? Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. And everyone's trying to be tricky. And, you know, that's the unseen fun of this game is the building beforehand, you know, all yeah, the thoughts sure. and the, the chess moves you're having with yourself, you know, the nights before are kind of interesting too. So let's talk a little bit about what you do to improve as a player. I mean, what's your process? How do you you practice? I mean, this goes to team building as well, right? Yeah, it's all about, for me, it's all about team building and discussing meta stuff. During game, my kind of mantra is don't make a mistake. And that works only if you've put the effort into building teams. Right. One of the things that I think people get wrong is that they have a set stack of cards that they build with. And they always have like, oh, I need a control card. Yep. Let me just get one out of this stack of 10 control cards I always use. Right. And what I do, generally when I team build, I don't discount anything. I will look over all the beta ray bills. I mean, they're useless. Right. But I'll still be like, huh, maybe this card could work if I do this, this, and this. Right. So I think that's probably the best way to improve as a player. So that does two different things. Firstly, you're learning what all the cards do. Mm-hmm. So if your opponent has that card, you you know what it does. There's right. no, you kind of be like, oh, this is how he's going to try and work this card to win. Right. But secondly, it also makes you think about interactions you wouldn't always think about. And in doing so, you kind of do the noticing trends thing where you can be like, oh, Imprisoned is really good because I've looked at all my cards and they all have really low fielding costs. Right. Um, if you don't look at all the cards... And you just have this set number of cards. You only know how those cards right. work. And you may discount a card like, oh, because it's got this huge fielding cost. But then suddenly a new card comes out that says field your characters for free. For sure, yeah. And yeah. if you paid attention to that card earlier, suddenly Imprisoned doesn't scare you. And you've got you know a way to use it to your advantage and your opponent can't. Yeah, and I, I shouldn't like... Imprisoned was always a good card. It just, at the time I used it, right. it was just very, very good. Yep. I think a classic example of this is... Well, maybe not a classic example because no one's really used it yet. But the rare Green Devil Mask. Oh, yeah. You would never look at that card mm-hmm. because the common Green Devil Mask is so good. Right. But if you actually look at uses for the rare, rare Green Devil Mask, there, there's crazy amounts. He's talking about Breath Weapon. Can you remind our listeners what the rare does? Because I'm sure a lot of people Yeah, don't I'm going to look it up. I believe it's like if you have three guys get KO'd by your opponent, you can refield them at level three, right? So, yeah, it's three or more of your character dice are KO'd during an opponent's turn. So they don't have right. to be KO'd by your opponent. But they have to be on the opponent's turn, right? They have to be on your opponent's turn. But if you look at that with Golden, yeah. you have the options to blue-eye stuff on your opponent's turn. Yep. And there are tons of ways to KO on your opponent's turn. So, for example, the gas called Thracker that came out where it has like an instant KO effect. Yep. You can just KO it when you can do a global ability. Mm-hmm. This suddenly becomes more interesting because now there's a way to KO on your opponent's turn. And speaking of just an anti-dragon card you know yeah exactly yeah um and so stuff like so my favorite example is clear which was so close to making my world theme which was flames of regency from dr strange the one that does three damage yeah so you can pay a bolt to deal three damage to a non-mystics character die and this is really close to making my team because again if you notice the trend of three damage kills most things well now you have a way to get rid of shriek and you can leave your shriek free because you can shriek whatever you want if they shriek your shriek, you have this card to now KO, so they have to blank this. So yeah, the other thing about clear was if you missed Ring of Winter, 
you now could buy a clear right. because it was a bolt and you right. got two bolts. Yeah. Interesting. And it worked really well. If Vulnerable Dreadnought hadn't come out, I would have run this. Um, <laughs> right. Interesting. So besides team building, I mean, you had mentioned like trying not to make a mistake. You know, I mean, I think especially at the highest levels, this game is a little bit like chess in terms of like the winner of the game is usually the guy who capitalized on the other person's mistake, usually, or misfortune if they had a bad role or something, right? So are there any things that you do consciously in terms of practicing or doing reps or anything like that, that might be helpful for other people who are out there listening and thinking, how can I get better as a player? Yeah, so it is just a case of running reps and using different cards in different situations. So I can't remember who said it. The thing about 100 games. Yep. Yeah, Mike Plum. Yep. Mike Plum. Yeah. I mean, that's true because the more you play a team, yep. particularly in the first. So if you want to just practice a basic, if you just want a little exercise you can do is run through the first five turns. Your opponent doesn't do anything to interfere. What are you going to do ideally in your first five turns with the characters you have? Your opponent doesn't have anything that helps you or hinders you. How do you work out um, how to get that fix in the field, right. turn three? How do you work out how to get Gold Dragon in the field, turn three? Or how do you even get your control set up? So how do you get Shriek out? How do you get Scarlet Witch out? What's the flow of your bag? So literally just sit there, roll three dice, work out what you're buying, and just keep doing it. One way that we practice, another kind of cool way that we do it down in uh, Los Angeles is you play against yourself, right? But you do the team that you're brewing versus like the popular deck that's like on the internet right now so for example like bar blitz or something would have been like in 2016 that would have been the deck but what you do is you just um for you you have to roll your dice but for their team which is the presumed meta if you will you just flip the dice to whatever side is best for them and you know your team is worth its salt if you get like 40 percent win ish mm -hmm. around that area when you have to roll and they get their fixed faces because right. like that's kind of what you can anticipate going into a big event it, it, it's interesting what you're saying though ben because there's there's a little bit of a contradiction and i think it's a cool one and and i totally agree with your play a lot of different things every week i bring a different team to my flgs and i think it really helps me in terms of when i sit down and play against somebody i've probably played a variant of that team so I know kind of what they're going to try to do, or I hope so. I, I try not to get totally caught with my pants down. But on the flip side of that, if you do that, then you don't quite get your 100 reps in, right? So you don't know one team well enough. So there's a time, you know, it, it's a trade-off in terms of you can, you can do one to learn all the cards, or you can do the other to really learn one team well. And I guess, how do you find that balance in terms of... Yeah, I, I come down on the side of play more games with different teams rather than play one with the same team. Me too. I get the 100 reps thing, and that is good. But if you get caught up with the same team... Yeah, I get bored with it too, I think. Oh, uh, yeah, you, you do definitely get bored with it. But even, I mean, you can still run the same team and yet run different cards. Right. As long as your win condition is set into place. So one of the, the good examples of what you guys were talking about playing against yourself was... When Mask Ring was a thing, going into 2017 UK Nats, Mask Ring was presumably the biggest thing. Right. So I made a really... my The team I ran for that was like all over the place. It was... I can't even remember what it was. It was. But it was kind of an anti-Mask Ring team. Was that... It, it, was, it was literally me sitting down with opposing a kind of the optimal Mask Ring team we had. So right. it had Parallax, it had Multiple Matt, it had Morphing Jar. Would run his team like you guys were saying, so he'd get perfect rolls. 
And then I just kept being like, how would I counter this thing? How would I counter this thing? <laughs> right. And yeah. I had this really weird mashup team where the win condition was basically Jinzo. Not a bad win um, condition. Because Mask Ring was so reliant on Parallax. So it had Jinzo and it had Umber Hulk, like the two main pieces. Cool. So it had Constantine get Gobby. Dwarf Wizard, Nightwing, Scarecrow, Umber Hulk, Jinzo, Blue Eyes. End of Days, Nefarious Broadcast. Wow. That's a wild team. It's, it's a bit of a weird team. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all about... I could use Nightwing and Umber Hulk to thin out their field constantly right? while making them keep ramping with Jinzo to kill themselves, essentially. Interesting. Mm. I'm, I'm seeing a trend with you. When I look at cards like Nightwing and uh, Rocket Raccoon or Firestorm, and there's a new one coming up in the Justice set we'll talk about, yeah. they scream Ben said Scott dice. Yeah, yeah. You know, you love like, that, like, just a field and ping out somebody, you know, just or take, a KO and ping out. And or like a, a Nitro, I imagine, is another card you like. I mean, one of the things you seem to really concerned with is board control can you talk about that a little bit i mean all those cards are really great for board control yeah so i think it comes back down to probabilities thing and making your opponent re-roll right if you can establish a position where your opponent is doing what you want them to do then you're going to win and the best way to do that is having a way to ko your opponent's stuff when you want so the reason shriek is so good is because you just leave her on the field and she's doing her job and she's effectively taking out a card from your opponent's team and they're making them play with only seven characters if you can have a way to do effectively that same thing. So with Rocket Raccoon, you can, whenever you want, K Rocket Raccoon to get rid of something they have on their side of the field. Yep. Same with Scarecrow as well. Um, I love Scarecrow. Mm. Even more because you can take their stuff. Right? Yeah, it's such a good card. So now you are controlling the board, but also making your board way better. Yep, such a good card. So yeah, Nightwing was all about that. It was, again, noticing the trend of these Masked Ring teams don't really have very high attack. And stuff like multiple man is a pain to get out. Yeah, this is fielding cost can really hurt you. Yeah, so you just increase the chances of them rolling that 2-4-4 side <laughs> by constantly carrying stuff. And then you're also encouraging them to have more masks in the reserve and more masks to pay PXG with. So you're encouraging them to pay more mm-hmm. life yep. with Jinzo. Yeah, one thing going back to the whole subject about how you practice, for me, 100 reps with 100 different teams versus 100 reps with one team. One thing that I always have done a lot of is when the set comes out, when it's off the competitive season. So like if the competitive season is like May, June, that area, and the set gets released in March, do like 100 reps of draft and stuff with like a bunch of different stuff and just get familiar with the cards so that when the competitive season comes around, you know what to put on your team when you say this eighth slot isn't working. Or you can say, like with Ben, say, if you just do the first five turns and you find like, hey, I can't set up in time. I can't, even even unoptimally, I can't set up fast enough. You can yeah. kind of almost eliminate that team and not waste any more time with it. Well, yeah, because the thing with that doing the five turns is because that's all you can really control. Right. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, most of the time, especially in casual, you will be able to do your first five turns without your opponent really hindering it. It gets very different when you talk about competitive because... Right. You want to control the board from turn three, probably. Mm-hmm. But yeah, another thing is if you build within set, I find that very helpful. Mm-hmm. Build within set before you start expanding because you find weird stuff, I guess, noticing trends again. When you're playing in set, you'll probably lose against someone who's not playing in set. Right. But you might find, hey, this one card gave me a chance. Mm-hmm. So, hey, maybe that one little gem is worth taking and putting it into what I want to do when I can build with all sets the counter argument to that is like you know i remember getting the rare scarecrow in the draft at world's finest and mm-hmm. in and in set he's garbage right yeah. you can't use him at all but out of set he's he shines so 
it can work both ways. You, you discover all these little things, and then suddenly you have this one card that you still need to keep your eye on. It's true. For sure, but so, it's also, if you play, if you got Scarecrow, Rare Scarecrow in a draft, you would probably be like, man, I wish I had a way to care that. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. So you can be like, oh, wait, I know a way to care that. <laughs> Let's try that. <laughs> exactly, it's a yeah. good point. All right, let's talk about your dragon team recently. It, it iterated, you know, I guess starting all the way back at um, UK Nats 2018. 2018, yeah. Yeah, and it iterated from 2018 UK Nats all the way to Worlds. Can you talk a little bit about the transformation as you went along and about the changes you made and, and why you made them? Yeah, so James Bloor from Dice Masters with Zach and James yep. did very well on an online tournament with Gold Dragon bring a winter hxg right. so that team it was kind of born out of necessity i didn't have super ante all the way up past worlds this year wow so i had to work out a team that could play well against yanti i guess actually that's not true because yanti wasn't even necessarily a thing before uk nats 2018 but james had done very well with this gold dragon team and i had gold dragon so mm-hmm. i was like well okay <laughs> let's try gold dragon right bring a winter tried it a few times and what I was finding, and I think what James found as well, the more he played that team, the Heimdall global variant let you set up very well for turn three, and you could get Gold Dragon out turn three, and you could hit for 10 damage on turn three. Right. But Gold Dragon often got lost in the weeds and would take an age to come back around. And your field was empty, right? And your field was empty, and you weren't set up properly to control anything, and your bag was a mess because you had right. the five dice you used to buy the Gold Dragon using Ring of Winter Global, plus the Ring of Winter, plus the Gold Dragon, plus the three energy you had spent to do the Breath Weapon. Right. So you had, whatever it was, ten dice in your bag, and Gold Dragon and Ring of Winter didn't line up properly. The good thing about Ring of Winter is you don't have to pay to field Gold Dragon. Well, if you get Gold Dragon out and roll it, on its three side, now you're having to pay the three energy. Yeah. So I was work- working that out and realized that Heimdall was just a mess of trying to... I, that it wasn't consistent. Mm-hmm. Talking about probabilities, you want to increase the chances that you're going to do what you want to do. Right. And Heimdall just wasn't doing it for me. But you had, but wasn't he on your 2018 UK Nets? Is, is that where you discovered yeah. that Heimdall sucked or no? I'm not fine. Not sucked, like, but it wasn't... Yeah. <laughs> you know? Didn't have anything on the... OG PXG. I think, so, if my memory is correct, I think you had like the Collector and Heimdall and maybe a Morph. Am I am I misremembering that? Yeah. So getting Gold Dragon background was a problem. Right. So my solution to that was to find another way to do damage, which you could also purchase and also set up later. I think you had Boom Boom on there too. Is that possible? I did. Yeah. So I kind of fell away from the Gold Dragon team, although I had Gold Dragon on there. Mm-hmm. My main win condition was Boom Boom Morph. And then, so the way I'd run it would be buy Boom Boom, turn one, buy Morph, turn two, set the bag properly. Turn three, go Ring Winter then. So you're doing this chip damage with Morph and Boom Boom, and they were probably focusing on that. Right. And because they kept carrying those dice, you could then come in with your Gold Dragon. So that was kind of the theory. The other theory was getting Collector out and running that. So again, I was kind of trying to beat the meta. Mm-hmm. And the thing I was having the most problem with was collectors. So I was working out how I could use collector against my opponent. Right. So yeah. So it was, it was all about kind of what my opponent would have. But the main thing was getting Boom Boom Morph out, doing this chip damage, and then setting up either a collector or a Gold Dragon to finish on the it. back end. Interesting. So really, Gold Dragon was Plan B almost, or the finishing move on that team. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, that team was a bit of a mess. It didn't do very well. It was a bit of a mess of several win conditions none of which lined up very well right going too Um, many directions at once yeah i think it's interesting to look at though because in this team you see the germs of the idea 
of a tremendous team to come, right? So, like, all the kernels are here. Yeah, so for sure. So there was a lot of stuff to work with with that team. And when you played that tournament, remind me, who came out on top at UK Nats this year? And what did you learn while you were going through that tournament in terms of that, that led you to your next iteration here? I, I believe it was the Yanti Dragon combo, right? Yeah, yeah. Mike, yeah. So Mike Power won with a Yanti Pseudo Dragon build, right. which I think he originally wanted to be a Gold Dragon build. <laughs> Interesting, um, right? And then he kind of fell into how effective Yanti could be with the smaller pseudo dragon, with the smaller pseudo dragon, and then kind of buying Ring Winter later as well. So he kind of did a similar thing to what I did. And actually, um, I took a game from him. I think it might have been the only game he lost. Interesting. But why that was good was because I got Gold Dragon in the field. Right. And I realized quite quickly that Gold Dragon was a very good counter to Yanti because Gold Dragon not only had stats. Mm hmm. But there too. And a breath weapon that could clear the field and pose serious damage, but also had a tune, right? Yeah. And could take out Yanti. Super thorn in the side of a Yanti team. Yes. So I kind of saw that and thought, hey, if this Yanti team is going to be a thing, and I was not convinced that it was. Me and Chris Williams, Trumus Six, talked a bit about Mike Power's team after the event, and we both were like, oh, that team's just not going to last. Everyone's going to work out how to play it, and US Nats, like whoever plays it, is going to get swatted away. It's so easy to stop. Little did we know. But, um, <laughs> well, again, but again, we talked earlier evolve, about, and, and we talked earlier about like there's these holes in the meta, and if you're aware of them, like how imprisoned was so strong earlier because the fielding costs were so low at that point in time. Yanti was so strong at that moment in time because there wasn't anything like rare venom that just ate up characters with little butts. Yeah, which I mean, they should have just made that. Uh, what was her name? Valindra Shadow Mantle just Valindra not Shadow Mantle. I don't count know. for evil characters. Yeah. Like, yeah. Come on, why? <laughs> you know, with kids, you know Yanti's going to be the meta. You put a two-cost attune character in the game with this sort of ability, you know that's going to be powerful. And then you put, like, the one card in the set which could be, like, the super solid counter to it, evil characters are exempt. What? Come on. <laughs> right. The other thing I found really annoying was the uncommon Yanti. Why don't they just make the uncommon Yanti not be able to be targeted by character abilities? Yep. As well as globals and action dice. Because that uncommon Yanti would be suddenly a fantastic counter to... The super. Super, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. But anyway. But, but again, that's like noticing the trends and, and that's an interesting theme that kind of is running through. I mean, I think your analysis is right in the long run. I think even with range right now, she's much less effective than she was you know, just six months yeah, ago. Yeah, and I, I think we we didn't see that bear fruit at US Nats, but I think at Worlds, uh, it was certainly not just the Yanti. I mean, you did win, but you won because of the super rare mimic, I right. think, and doubling up on that. So you, in order to make Yanti effective, you had to double her power. Yep, exactly, because I knew I wasn't be able to keep her on the board for very long. Yeah, so I noticed that with Gold Dragon, and the team kind of fell apart from you, Knats. And the other thing I noticed with playing games against Yanti was that actually Yanti is not very good at recovering from a setback in terms of if you can clear the field or get rid of Yanti and they miss Yanti. Yep. Particularly if they miss Pseudo Dragon, that becomes a big problem because buying two Pseudo Dragons is not particularly optimal. Aligning your pieces is the difficult thing with that team, right? Yeah, and actually there's not a ton of great mask globals to do on your opponent's turn right now. So having the energy wasn't that useful. But I worked out, okay, if that's the case, how can I make sure the Gold Dragon gets through the bag? And if I'm just focusing on Gold Dragon, how can I keep it in the field? And that's where Mimic came in because I knew Mimic was kind of the best. Okay, so now you're iterating onto the Canadian team at this point. Yeah, so coming out of the UK, watching US Nats, I was all about how can I stop Yanti? Because that's going to be obviously the thing. the thing going forward. Right. Uh, and Gold Dragon actually took a game off Mike Power 
Right. Uh, so again, it comes back down to when I was talking about building inset, how can you take that one gem that worked really well right. and use that? And it was all about, okay, how can I get Gold Dragon? And the problem with Mimic is that you have to have a lot of cards in your team yeah. to make him work particularly effectively. But the great thing about Mimic is you can swap targets. So suddenly I had a Gold Dragon in the field, but I also had another one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Potentially ouch. as well. Before we get onto that, just want to place us in time here. Now, at this point in time, you had moved to Canada sometime before yeah. the UK Nats, correct? Yes. And so yeah. you made a surprise return home to, to the UK to, to play in Nats? How did that yeah, work out? Did I, you come out like the day before or all of, practically how did it that was, happen? Yeah, it was a couple of, I think, two days. So actually, sadly, my grandma passed away. Oh, sorry about um, that. Yeah. And I went back for the funeral. So I think I came back. The next day we had the funeral. The day after that, we went to UK Nats, wow. to UK Games Expo, which all plays a part into why that team was such right. a mess. Yeah, well, there's a lot on your mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't really realize that until after the thing, because you're still running on adrenaline. Sure. But, but I'm not using that as a, that's not really a good excuse, uh, yeah. particularly. Um, it's I'm hard to travel. Always... I mean, that's why the home team has the advantage, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. So we're headed towards Canadian Nationals. Yeah. And, and your qualifier team... I think was the same as your your final team. Did you did you do anything different between the quals and the the actual final of Canadian Nationals? No. Okay. No. So okay. So coming off the back of UK Nats, and because I'd made a last minute change that was the worst thing of all time. <laughs> when I went to Canadian Nats, I took very little in terms of Dice Masters. Uh, I took like four teams, I think, and I knew that I was running that Gold Dragon team. So I, I didn't change anything. Yeah. Let's, I'm, I've got the team in front of me here, so let's, I'm just going to run run it down real quick what was on it. I've got Ring of Winner, Yon T. Now, wasn't it the lesser? It was the common, right? It was the common. It right? was the common, yeah. All right, so then there was the Billy Club, the rare Billy Club, Common Mimic, good old fancy Shriek, Sonic Beam, Professor X, uh, No More Magnus, the one with the uh, Field of Cyclic Global, Madam Web, the rare Madam Web, rare Gold Dragon, Arch Nemesis, and Create Food and Water. That, that was the team that you played in Qual's, and then in the finals. Uh, before we get to, what's your thinking in terms of dealing with quals? And do you play your team to get practice with it? Do you hide your team? What What is your thought process on that in terms of playing? Yeah, quals? I'm not a fan of hide your team kind of person. Got it. I almost always play what I'm going to play because I, I think it's important to get the practice. Yep. So yeah, for a good example of this is Mike Power didn't think he was going to run that Super A anti team, right? But ran it the first day of qualifiers and, and went for an hour, right? Game. Yeah. yeah. So he's like, huh, maybe this, maybe this team is, is as good as I think it is. Right, right. And it's not like people figured out how to beat it between that day and the finals, right? Yeah. And the other thing is, if you run a team that you're not going to run in the final and something does very well, so like there's this one card that suddenly works very well for you in your fake team, you're going to maybe think about changing your actual team. And I think changing your actual team is a very bad idea. Right. Mm-hmm. And what was your, your buy order in the Canadian Nats at that point? So I found, like we're talking about, Gold Dragon turn three just wasn't effective in my mind because you couldn't cycle it back around. So the way I kind of worked out how to stall the game, especially against Yanti, was if you bought a Yanti, you could get that into the field. So my buy order depended on whether I went first or second. And it was important on that turn three to establish some kind of board control, particularly against Yanti. So almost certainly in the first two turns, I'd buy a Mimic and put a sidekick in the field. Mm-hmm. The other choice of what I'd do, so turn one, I would buy either Yanti or Shriek. Right. And I'd keep a mask and make a sidekick. 
Turn three, I then buy a mimic and create food and water into my bag. Or turn two, you've been talking about? Uh, turn two, sorry. Yep. So turn three, then you roll the anti or shriek and mimic. And generally what I tried to do was roll the shriek or yanti as bolts mm-hmm. in order to buy Ring of Winter and also field mimic and field sidekick so you could prep the Ring of Winter plus a bunch of other dice. So that turn four, you could buy Gold Dragon and get out the other piece of control, the shriek or the yanti. All at the same time. <laughs> All at the same time, yeah. yeah. So turn four, you you already had a board state with right. Gold Dragon and with Shriek slash Yanti, where their Yanti couldn't be effective because if they had bought their own Shriek or were using Yanti to ping out your Shriek, mm-hmm. you always had that extra level of control with Gold Dragon, yep. where every time they attuned, you got to attune back. Clever. Um, so when I see people playing the Gold Dragon team, the one the thing that I, you know, you had even mentioned this with the, the James's team earlier, the thing that's most difficult is coordinating that Ring of Winter and the dragon yeah. and the purchase of the dragon so they can both happen simultaneously. It seems like Mimic is the, your common Mimic, I mean, he's such a good card on this team because he's giving you the churn and the ramp to line all that stuff up correctly, and he can turn into a Gold Dragon stats-wise when you need him to at the end to be a, a closer. Was he also the weak link to your team? If you, if I mean, it seems like maybe the way to play against this team is to try to chop him off, to try to chop down that. Did you did you find that when you were playing it? Um, no, for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. The main reason was all the mimic prepping you needed to do was done on your turn right. before you passed priority. Yep. So particularly on that turn three, you would roll four dice: a mimic, two sidekicks, and the yanti slash shriek. Right. Uh, if you could get two energy out of the yanti and shriek. That would be your uh, Ring of Winter purchase, sorry. Mm -hmm. Leaving you with a Mimic and two sidekicks. You could use one of those to pay to field Mimic. And then you had one spare, which you could use to make a sidekick. You also had the sidekick in the field, which you can spin down to make another sidekick. So right there, you're prepping four dice. And one of those going into your bag is the Ring of Winter. That meant on turn four, you would have four dice plus four more dice. So you'd have eight dice. One of those is Ring of Winter. And then you only need five of those seven other dice to come up as energy in order yeah. to buy Gold Dragon. And throw them out there level three. Yeah. So your opponent could react theoretically mm-hmm. and ping off Mimic. But that meant I'd already prepped all the dice I needed to. I had Gold Dragon. I had my big purchase. Right. Any other ramp after that is a bonus. Right. And if they keep coming off Mimic, you can threaten them with copying your Gold Dragon. Yeah. Well, I was thinking maybe if you see this team shrieking Mimic right off the gate. Yeah. And that was definitely the most effective thing to do. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, pinging him because you only need him to work once really after that it's just gravy right <laughs> yeah but the other thing with that with um yanti teams was if they went early shriek and they spent that on mimic right well now you also had gold dragon and your shriek right we shriek yeah interesting your yanti. it sounds like it could be an interesting chess match for sure so yeah there was a couple of layers that you could use to lock down uh, a Yanti. And that's why I went for Yanti over Jubilee. And I think a lot of people would have run the Jubilee. But I chose Yanti for the fact that Yanti had a tune. Right. So it was a threat to their Yanti. But also because if I messed up the turn three roll, if I rolled a character rather than energy, yeah. at least Yanti was cheap to field. Yeah, that, that level three face of Jubilee could really hurt. Yep, really, really badly. One of the cards I really like on this team, that maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, this iteration of the team, was the Arch Nemesis. I'm assuming that's to do a little flip before your breath weapon to get rid of blobs and stuff. Am I right in that assumption, or how else were you using that? Um, no, yeah, Blob and Collector. Collector mm-hmm. was the big one. Collector was the, the team I found the most challenging to play against. Okay. The bad thing about Dragons is that Dragon is very much your win condition. Right. If there was a couple of layers of control, particularly an early Scarlet Witch and a Shriek, mm-hmm. 
that wasn't very effective for Yanti teams to do because in Yanti teams, you want to get Yanti out as fast as possible. Right. But in collector teams, you could afford to spend your first two turns buying two villain control pieces because they helped your win condition. Right. And that Scarlet Witch can be a killer Ooh, yeah. for Ring of Winter. Because if you can't roll Ring of Winter, then you're back to doing what the Heimdall variation did was you have to at some point pay to field gold dragon which hurts <laughs> yeah so collector was a pain uh and was the main reason i included arch nemesis i also found the action itself to be very very useful particularly against collector interesting okay great and it was just another level of i can out kill your shrieks right just just so people remember the, the action actually says target character die you control and target posing character die deal damage to each other equal to their a so, you know, with a gold dragon, that really works great. Yeah, like you can use gold dragon to kill off their shriek. So it's more than just the global, because you don't have a ping other than a tune on this the team. Tunes, yeah. No. So. It was partly because of the global, but it was also because of the action. And if you kept mimic ramp, um, which a lot of people didn't stop, apart from people who played me constantly and realized that was the thing to stop rather than gold dragon. Right. It was very good because buying a full cost action that you get through all next turn is not that difficult to do. Right. Well, while we're here, you, I mean, you are probably one of the most supreme players at using that mimic ramp. So if you can talk to the, some of the newer players out there who are listening to the show, if you could kind of walk them through step by step how you would go about using mimic ramp. So yeah, so mimic requires three other pieces in my mind to be successful. Some people play it with fewer than these three. And if I was ever going to play mimic, I would always run the Rare Professor X with the global, the Billy Club for the global, and create food and water for the global. Okay, one second. Let me spit out those globals for those folks. So for the Professor X, it's pay mask once per turn, field target sidekick, and your used pile. And the used pile is an important part of this equation. Yep. So Billy Club, global, pay zero once per turn on your turn, spin one of your sidekick character dice to its mask face. All right. And then we've got the, the Kate create, global. Create food and water, which is global. Pay one generic once per turn, draw a die from your bag. Return it to your bag or add it to your use pile. Okay, Ben. So now that we got out of the way, so how, how specifically were you using all these? Because I thought it was really uh, instructive in, in terms of high-level play. Yeah, so again, it, it it just gives you consistency, especially with those first five turns that sometimes I, pr I practice quite a lot. And talking about how to set that up, because you could use the Professor X to bring a psychic in, you now had a couple of chances, or effectively went from a one in six chance of a sidekick when you wanted it to a one in two chance because you could use the psychic face, you could use the mask face, or you could use the question mark face. So the Professor X global becomes very, very important because of that, giving you the one in two chance rather than the one in six chance to make a sidekick. Yep. The Billy Club becomes important because it increases your odds even further because you now can have a sidekick at any point in the field that be, can become a mask to make another sidekick right it's a bit like the cold gun we were talking about earlier the reason cold gun is so effective is because you can just leave it there you don't have to roll it and then create food and water made consistency because you could use the create food and water global to bring out a die from your bag so now not only do you have the one and two of actually rolling a sidekick you also have the chance of having a sidekick already out in your field to make a sidekick yep. And then you also have a chance that if your use pile is empty, you now can put a psychic into your use pile. Which lets you do the Professor X. And, and I think we, well, the one little piece we forgot to mention is that Mimic, the way he works, common Mimic, is, is when he's fielded, you copy the printed A and D of a target character die. When a copy of that character die is fielded, draw two dice from your bag and prep them. 
So you were using it in the way you, you field mimic, name a sidekick, and then every time you field a sidekick, you're prepping two dice. Yeah, so even with just a sidekick in the field, and that was the biggest problem and why Professor X was so good, because you needed a sidekick in the field before you field mimic. Right. But once you field mimic, you don't need sidekicks in the field any longer. So with the sidekick in the field, you can field mimic, and then you can instantly spin down the sidekick that you just named into a mask to make another one. Is there any um, calculation you do in terms of thinning your bag versus having that sidekick? What, what's the process that you... So yeah, one of the important things, especially again with the first few turns, that I see a lot of players not do. Mm -hmm. And I think if you play against me online, I'll point this out when you don't do it, because everyone does it all the time, is it's vital to only cake with four dice in your use pile. Okay. So on turn one, if you roll three dice and you buy a Mimic... And then turn two, you buy a Shriek, say three cost Shriek, and use one energy from the four you've rolled to cake. You are putting five dice into your bag. Mm -hmm. That means that you now have to pull one of the dice that you don't want to roll next turn. Right. So a sidekick. So potentially a three in five chance, which is not the worst thing. You're probably likely to get a sidekick. But on the occasion where you get a Mimic, mm -hmm. that becomes a problem. Right. And that's why on this build, Pet was very much dependent on whether I went first or second, whether I'd buy the Yanti or the Shriek. Mm -hmm. If I went first, I could only roll three dice, and therefore I had to buy a Yanti, so I could save that final die to make a sidekick. Because if you make a sidekick on that turn one, on the turn two, you're now putting only four dice into your bag with cake, mm -hmm. and therefore it doesn't matter what dice you draw, you're always going to put it back in. Right. Uh, and that's very important, because setting up knowing exactly what you're going to pull from your bag is, is just vital. So always good to have four, not five. Yeah, and the other thing I noticed people doing is if they do put four dice in their bag, if they pull a sidekick, they will put that sidekick in the use pile. Yeah, that's a that's a very common Which is another problem because they now will draw three dice and have to refill their bag with a bunch of sidekicks. Yeah, now you got a janky bag. But also, not only that, you want to keep the sidekicks in the use so that when you field mimic, you now mm -hmm. have a bunch of sidekicks in the use which you can bring out with Professor X. Right. All right, great. That's very, very helpful. Thank you, Ben. That's some high-level play right there. Yeah. It is, it is a bit technical, and it's very difficult to know why it makes a difference mm -hmm. unless you actually just do it a bunch of times. Yep. It's one of those ones I would, if you haven't tried it, try sit it. down and try <laughs> it and really play and play, try playing it wrong too, to feel the difference because you really do, you feel it. Like, oh, wow, I've just gotten janky here, you know? <laughs> the classic thing is do the, put the five dice in and draw a mimic, and then. Ooh, yeah. Ouch. You messed up. Yep. Yep. I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that would happen to me all the time when I was trying to do... Big entrance? Big entrance, yeah. I hate big entrance. Big you entrance hate big entrance. the bag just that way. And like that's, you know, knowing when to actually put things in your bag and not put things in your bag. It's, uh, well, it's the a thing skill that you always develop got just me, by feel, I think. The thing that always got me with big entrance and the biggest reason why I hate it is because if you don't have Resurrection or like Atlas on your team, what you do is when you buy big entrance... And you have five dice in your bag, you're always drawing four sidekicks and not drawing big entrance. And if you do, by chance, get lucky and draw big entrance, it's really not that lucky in theory. But trust me, you will not draw big entrance if you play this card. <laughs> you, If you get, by chance, lucky and draw the big entrance, you're not going to roll it. Or if you do roll it, you're not going to get all the energy types that you need. But so it's interesting. It's a little tangent there. Cake, I'm just, but, as we're talking, cake might actually work well with big entrance because it could get your bag down to before. Yeah, I, mean, I think the repeatability you definitely need that prep global yep or that the cake global with big entrance otherwise i mean i'd really dislike big entrance yep me too 
me too but it is and you don't you don't think it's a big if you look at on the face that's why maths is kind of misleading because if you look at it on the face you're putting that big entrance in the bag you get to draw you have a four and five chance of drawing that big entrance right on turn two i never but did. that one time where it, the, the odds don't aren't in your favor <laughs> right is the worst yep. because it messes up your bag so badly but if you had cake with it you could cake first and then put the big entrance in possibly i'm just thinking out loud here maybe. another thing yeah. about big entrance while so, we're on the big entrance tangent is like don't use it because after like the first two times it comes around it's just a dead die well to be fair there are players who use it and use it really well it's just it doesn't fit into my play style particularly well or or it just hates me i'm not sure which <laughs> maybe both i think it, it was very good in a certain team yep but yeah the problem with big entrance as well as it being a dead die after one use or two uses is the actual use is a bad use generally. Yeah, it clogs your bag, man. That's Investing in a bunch of dice, ironically for a dice game, is a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I also get very annoyed with people who get really mad about the max dice thing. Yeah. yeah. You only need to buy one copy of most dice. It's true. If you're buying any more than that, you're probably doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. At Worlds, did you ever buy... Actually, no, Lucan bought about... 10 fixes <laughs> but, well, that's generally, a different story but that's an exception <laughs> generally you only need to buy one of each copy of your dice right yes if i ever got to the point where i had two gold dragons in the field i knew i was doing badly right. which is ironic because you now have two massive dragons in the field yep. but that means something's going wrong right. same here like if i ever came to the point where i had more than one fix it then i knew i was probably losing that game because the game i lost was the game where i bought three fixes but, but it's interesting yep. on the same token though I think that is the hardest thing that takes your 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 Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours to really learn. Don't overbuy. You know, it's so easy to want to buy more. And I think it's uh, when I watch players develop, and myself included, that was one of the hardest lessons: is just to keep keep it lean, buy sure. just I'm what you not, need. I'm still not over that, right? I'm right. I'm still like, oh man, I don't want to waste this energy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let me do something. Shopping spree time. Yeah. <laughs> but the person who's best at this that I found uh, is DM Amada. Uh-huh. Oh, he yeah. is like regimented. He's just like, I will burn these four dice. I don't care. Uh, good like, for him. I'll burn four energy. That's fine. I was like, <laughs> no, is- you have to buy something. This is part of why I play with so many globals on like most of my teams. I always have at least like three globals on my teams because yep. I know the only way I can prevent myself from buying stuff is to replace that with a bunch of global abilities. For sure. And I think that's why new players struggle so much with globals, because globals are a vital part of the game, but only really when you get into kind of the weeds of thinking about, I need to make the most of my energy without buying a bunch of dice. Yep. Okay, so between Canadian Nats, which you won, and going to Worlds, it seems like you swapped out one card. Yeah. It seems like you had uh, three cards that were floating around in your mind, I believe. And Actually, so I had about, so you say three cards, I probably had about 20 cards (laughs) okay what were your top five that were were cycling for that final Um, spot (laughs) so yeah so madam web was still there Mm -hmm. um spider-man was still there good cards uh which is stuff i thought about for canlets right clear was a really really big one that i mentioned yep just because she was so good against control teams collector teams and collector was one of the big things i was worried about yeah especially with arch nemesis then suddenly that becomes awesome yeah yeah really it's really really good and i recommend people messing around with it because being able to do three damage for one energy on your opponent's turn so good 
killing off a shriek uh, whenever you wanted on your opponent's turn, and it wasn't a global that your opponent could mess with. Yep. Um, was really strong. Blackbird for the mm-hmm. global I thought about. Yep. So that slot was very much for a pivot piece, and I wasn't that pleased with Madam Web because it's just very expensive. How often did you actually find yourself buying her when you played this team? I mean, usually Gold Dragon's clearing most of the field anyway, right? Yeah, especially with Arch Nemesis. I can't think of a single die that can survive Breath Weapon 3 in modern with Arch Nemesis. I guess Madam Web becomes helpful if somehow Gold Blood Dragon gets blanked and you need some yeah, other exactly. way to clear the board. So my, my pivot was, if they can really shut down Gold Dragon, if they could get Shriek out and I can't roll my Shriek, or if they had Kate Bishop and they had a way to keep enough energy, right gold dragon still massive stats and mimic can be massive stats so how can i punch them through regardless and that's what man web is good for right she's also kind of an alternate way to clear off a shriek right but very expensive yep yep so yeah so i had a few other pieces but once venerable dreadnought came along i didn't really think about too much else (laughs) love at first sight (laughs) yeah it was really we we did some testing with it i'm my favorite thing about it was the stats. Yeah, big die. Now I had another massive stat character to push through with, as well as being a ping for Shriek. And I don't think we ever ruled on this, but um, the way I thought saw it working is I could do the range damage, clear off all their control, and then breath weapon as well if I wanted to. But but yeah, but is I don't know about active? the timing of it. Yeah. If Shriek is blanked, if Gold Dragon is blanked when it enters the attack step, yeah, I think it would still be blanked, right? I don't know. The attack step has started for both of them. and he's Generally, been, yeah. that never became a problem because right. Dreadnought was, especially with Mimic Ramp, right, where you're having a bunch of psychics in the field. One of the cards I should have thought about was put Wonder Woman on that team because that would have been very good. Ooh, yeah, it would have been really good. And would have been an effective counter against Lucan's team. But actually, I thought about putting um, the Black Widow on as well. Uh, yep. Mm. Yep. I found it a bit strong against Mimic. Could hurt general. your Mimic, it right? It did, but like I said with Magic Missile, getting rid of Mimic right. wasn't the worst thing in the world. <laughs> you only did once, right? Yeah. So, Warhammer. Let's talk Warhammer now that you found this card. You put it on your set, and we've had Warhammer now for long enough to now have a second look back at it. Any cards and combos for Warhammer that you've found that are really great in the last few months? I think the ones that have come to the forefront, um, Orc Knob and Orc Boy, mm-hmm. are very strong. Some of the Poxwalkers with Team Up. Yep. All the stuff we kind of thought would be good has lived up to expectations for the most part. Yeah, Team Up for sure. I can't think of anything that has been like, oh, I thought that was going to be really good and wasn't really good. So all the Fetid Bloat drones are really strong. What do you think about that global, his global? Have you been tinkered around with that at all? Yeah, with Spot as well. It's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. I don't think it's consistent enough. Well, not consistent enough. It's very easy to set up. But you're giving up a little board control to make it work. You do, and you need to have a way of getting psychics into the field, so you kind of effectively have to have Professor X as well. Yep, so it's another one that takes up three slots. Oh, pretty so quickly. another one takes up both. And because you don't get that reroll, it's not effective enough because you can't have the consistency that you do in Mimic. But you only need one two-cost character out, so... Yeah, it's like the, the difference between Nasty Plot and Gearing Up reminds me of that from the early days, you know? Yeah, and I don't know why we all thought gearing up... Well, I guess because prepping stuff wasn't anywhere near as strong because you rolled everything anyway because you had Professor X. Whereas rolling something immediately was a bonus because there was no way to do that. Yeah. Whereas Nasty Plot wasn't as effective because prepping dice was pretty useless. One of the things I love about the Fed Builder and Global that it you know, just from from a fun perspective, is it gives you that chance to have the Hail Mary at the end of the game. It's like, I need this die, I didn't draw. And if I can get it <laughs> right now I could win and if I don't get it I lose you know I've had a couple of games where it's just come up and save my bacon at the right moment you know I've had a fun. lot of games like that where it's just like oh trying just the Hail Mary failed <laughs> 
quite a few. <laughs> if you're going to build a fetter bloke during global team, right. the things to be, um, yeah, try saying that three times fast. <laughs> there are a couple of things to be aware of. Fielding cost of characters is massive. Yep. And remembering to save enough energy to hopefully when you roll it to actually field the thing that you pull, right? <laughs> and that is a massive problem. Yep. And the second thing is maybe focus on actions because actions don't cost anything to field. Yep. So the best use I've seen of the Fetter Bloat during Global is actually on um, Joe Vega, who's part of Chris and Rob Game Room. Mm -hmm. His Beholder Hella team. Yeah. Because Beholder has basically no, fielding no cost in fist fielding cost. Yep. Being able to spam a bunch of those, buying them, putting them out, doing the globals is very, very effective. Yes, it is. Or, you know, one of the things that might be helpful, too, is to have a energy fixer so that you can potentially pull a sidekick out and field whatever you, you have in there. And, yeah, and then you're putting in four, four cards yeah, now. exactly. And then the other thing with that is you're taking away a sidekick that you could sacrifice to use the global. Yes. So it, it, it becomes, doesn't work quite as cleanly as Mimic in sure that doesn't. way because you're losing two rather than one. So, yeah, you're really giving up a lot of board control at that point. Yeah, but yeah, it's still a really interesting global. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it does against the new stretch global that's coming out yeah. yeah speaking of which let's talk justice spoilers ben i've asked you to pick three and uh, we'll we'll take a shot at a couple of cards too we've just recently seen these if you haven't oh, i should mention you, you had a long discussion i believe with dm armada about the uh, warhammer cards yep. when they first came out so i'm going to link to that in the show notes if anybody's curious you guys went over i think every card in the in the set so and gave yeah, it a yeah. can i do a quick shout out as well to the thunderwolf cavalry absolutely and the primus redemptor dreadnought is really good as well interesting okay remind me what does that one do again when he attacks uh you can ko him to do damage equal to his level which doesn't seem mm. that good but if you pair it with the one that lets you field a space marine for free or right. one less it actually works really well Especially if you need shields, because you're carrying stuff all the time. It's a bit like Hush or the Uncommon Wharf from War of Light, uh -huh. where they had like an end-of-turn carry trigger. It kind of gives you that cycle of dice, which is nice. Interesting. You need shields. Yeah, I'm uh, going to have to give like it a try. Oh, cool, right. that's a great uh, shout-out. Also, this is kind of outside of what we're talking about, but if you hear something, that's the rain coming down. Believe not, it or not. Believe it or not, <laughs> not, in, in not in Toronto, in Los Angeles. <laughs> Yeah, no, all the rain here is frozen. Yeah, so. it's, it's raining pretty, pretty hard here. On to Justice League spoiler. So you, I asked you to pick three. I'm going to have Luke and throw in some. I might throw in a few that, that just jumped out to us. Not necessarily the meta tier things, but things that it might also be fun to play or things we're just looking forward to incorporating into our teams. Yeah, so I chose one from each of the kind of sets. So I chose one from the Doom Patrol, one from the Mystics, and one from the Base Box. So my first one was from the Mystics, which is the Phantom Stranger mysticism. When your opponent attacks, each die that he attacks with does one damage to all his other dice. Right. It's a little bit similar to the Enchantress from Thor. Yep. I think it was the Uncommon, where when they field, their dice does one damage to all their other fielded dice. Right. Except this one's for four, and that one's for six. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it has really good stats for a defensive dice. Yeah, if he attacks with five dice, he's doing five damage to everything on his field. But with him, I know a lot of people have been worried about, like, good old Ant-Man. They've been worried about Ant-Man. He wouldn't stop Ant-Man because Ant-Man would deal damage to everybody else, but Apart he would still himself. be able to run through and do his little thing, right? Yeah, unless they attack with two Ant-Men. Yeah, then, then he would be. But this is... So I think everyone is interested in the Bizarro, where they can only attack with one of each affiliation. Right. 
I see this as kind of like an alternate way to do this. I mean, being able to do damage to your opponent's field without you doing damage to your opponent's field, because yeah. it's their die that's doing damage. So this gets around Halt. Yep. I, I think it's a bonkers strong card. It just clears out a lot of their own blockers. So on their turn. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's on their turn. So if you have a way to, it's going to encourage them to attack with less dice. Yeah. Because they can't afford to attack with five dice. It's funny. I looked at this and I thought, well, it would hurt Bard? No, it wouldn't hurt Bard because when he attacks, he gives the buff. Oh, so, yeah. defensive buff. Yep. Yep. Okay, that's a great card and uh, an interesting one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to playing that one too. What's your next card? Green Arrow, No Fancy Ring. Ooh. So this is a four-cost bolt from Justice League. The ability is when fielded, deal X damage to each opposing character die where X is the number of your active Justice League characters other than Green Arrow. Ugh, so mean. <laughs> so yeah, mean. I mean, I, so when I look at when fielded effect, I look at how easy is it going to be to rotate this die, and it's only got a one, two, three defense. Yeah. A little the bit expensive on the fielding, nasty, yeah. but you have a Batman which reduces fielding. You know, if you have that Batman out, it's zero, zero, one fielding, and it's just crazy. I, I, I just like stuff that you can do massive amounts of damage to your opponent's field. Oh, um, yeah, it's a board clear. It's, it really yeah. makes Justice League teams for real. Yeah, know? I'm interested that no one sort of bought this one up before. Uh, it seems really strong to me. It seems really strong to me. And, you know, board clears, like we said, are hard to come by. You, you, that mm-hmm. Madam Web, that's why Madam Web is so good. It's why Venerable is so good. There's just not a ton of them in the game, and, and this certainly is one. Winfield effects are good because they can, they're effective during your main step, which mm-hmm. is the reason the anti is so good. Yep. Being able to win during your main step is very strong. I mean, this seems like a card that was right up your alley. It's like Rocket Raccoon and Firestorm on steroids here. You know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, what's your, what's, your, what's your next card? Doom Lance, which is the basic action from uh, the box set, so which has me the most excited. This is a four-cost. Panger, be quiet. Um, so it's choose one of your active character dice. Only that character die may attack this turn. All opposing character dice must block this turn if able. When an opposing character die is KO'd this turn, its controller loses one life. And on the double burst, also, if an opponent has no active character dice at the end of turn, that opponent loses one life. Okay, this is when I was thinking about having the issues with timing conflicts. You know, I mean, you, you, you think pairing it with, with a... With a so with why don't a, you do- think it works with deadly, yeah? So if you attack with one deadly character? I'm not sure it doesn't. This is one of, one of the things where I'd, where I'd really want to get PK'd away on it. But deadly, I think, happens at the end of turn. And for this thing to do its damage, it's got to happen during your turn. So I'm wondering if somehow that was the way they were wording it to get around the deadly. You know, try to take the sting off this a little bit. I'm not sure. But I'd, I'd like to hear what other people thought hmm. about that, you know? Interesting. Because you, your mind jumps right to that, right? Deadly was going to be brutal with this. But... Yeah. I mean, it would still clear the field, but it might not do the damage. You know what I mean? Hmm. But at the end of the turn, surely it's still during the turn. That's what I said. said. That's what I'm wondering. That's that. That's the question. Is at the end of the turn as the curtain comes down, or is it in your turn? I would think it's not. I would think it counts, but because the end of the ending of a book is still part of the book. Yeah, I'm not sure. So Doom Lance reminds me a lot of. So I used to have this combo with the Super A Lantern Battery, which did one life per character dice that blocked. So if I attacked with something, my opponent would have to pay one life per character the die they wanted to block with. Uh, and also the Harpy Lady Sister Rare mm-hmm. from Yu-Gi-Oh, which was deal one damage per character not blocking. When she attacked, right? 
when she attacked. You could attack with Harpy Lady's sister. Right. Every dice they blocked with, they had to take damage for, and every dice they didn't block with, they had to take damage. <laughs> well, with with Doomlands, do, with, with Doomlands, they they have to block. So. Uh... But with Doomlands, yeah, exactly. They have to. It's just a straight up com- combination of that what that team was doing because yeah. it's basically deal one damage for every die your opponent has in the field. Would that be you know again? And this one, another rules question for PK. Would that be one of those ones where you can't force your opponent to pay a cost issue? No, because they're they're paying life either way, right? Because you're not forcing them to do anything. They don't have to block. Well, they do with, with Doomlands. With Doomlands, they would have to block, right? Oh, yes. So in so this they, case... So it might undo the Lantern Battery, right? In that case. If, if yeah, you be, couldn't do it with Lantern Battery. Yeah, right. It wouldn't work with Lantern Battery, yeah, because they have to block. Mm-hmm. Um, but Harpy just works. So, but you don't need to do that because Doomlance is still doing one damage. With Deadly, if it works, you're basically doing one damage for each die your opponent has in the field. Yeah. That's essentially what it is. Um, and that's very strong, especially with super stuff. Strong. If it works the way you're thinking it works. With Deadly, yeah. yeah. I think that's the obvious thing that everyone's thought of. I played it a little bit with Steven from DM Armada, uh, and it's pretty pretty effective. I imagine. Even with like something like um, just a Gorilla Grod that has good stats. Oof. Yeah. Especially if you use Instant War, right? So that's the thing I thought of as well, because that weighs three yeah. guaranteed Damage. one defense characters. Going away, yeah, even without Deadly. Yeah. So, Luke, did yeah. you have any cards you wanted to talk about real quick? Yeah, I, I had a few. So, uh, the first one that I want to talk about is Zatanna, Master Magician's Daughter. I'm not a huge fan of this ability just because I think it's encouraging a play style, which I don't like playing against. But uh, the card's ability is it's a three-cost mask, uh, Justice League and Mystic, and it has the ability Attune, and while active, your Mystic character dice gain Attune. So, immediately, I was just like, Wong! Fast, ally, and a tune. That's awesome. And another one that I'd like to pair this with is that new Atlantis, which does, when you play it this turn, whenever you feel a sidekick, you draw and roll two dice. So you're doing a lot of attune damage for all your mystics. I mean, you pair it with a pseudo dragon, it becomes even more. You're ramping. It's it's solid. Another card which I really like, the Riddler, Creature of Pure Pride. While the Riddler is active, when an opponent re- rolls or re-rolls a die other than during their roll and re-roll step, deal that opponent two damage. So you pair that with the Green Devil Mask, Tabaxi Rogue, Instant War, Riddler, and then also the uh, Primaris Aggressor Global. So you put out Tabaxi Rogue, then you play Instant War. Let's say they have three characters active. They draw three sidekicks. They field three more. They take three damage from Tabaxi Rogue. Now Green Devil Mask triggers. They have to reroll all six of these dice. They reroll all six dice. They take 12 more damage. And then now they have nobody left in the field, like, <laughs> optimally, right? And then you just pay your two fists for the Primaris Aggressor Global and run through for lethal. That just seems so fun to me. That's what you call mean at your friend the local gaming <laughs> store. <laughs> then uh, uh, the last card which I want to talk about is Black Canary. When Black Canary attacks, villain character dice cannot block. It's uh, called Black Canary Flower Shop Owner. It's a three-cost fist Justice League. And so you pair that with the Danger Room Rare from X-Men First Class. And when she attacks, the opposing team cannot block. You can pair this with, like, Collector Nobby for, like, even more power. Because now you can collect her in your uh, Black Canary when you have lethal on the table. If not, you can just collect her in Nobby for a lot of damage. It works really well with the Primaris Aggressor Global. It's just it's so good. Like Simple and good. The last card, which I just kind of... It's not really very good, but it's certainly very fun, is uh, Clayface Treasure Hunter. Six-cost mask, Legion of Doom, and Villain. When a global ability or action die increases the A or D of an opposing character die, 
Clayface gets plus one attack and plus one defense. So you use this with the Primaris Aggressor Global, and I'm talking about that one a lot today, but uh, they have five characters out in the field, which is pretty average, I guess. Clayface is going to get plus six attack and plus five defense because they just have all those characters out, and all your other okay. people get yeah. plus one as yeah, well. Sneaky so good. Sneaky good. It reads kind of trash, but if you think about it for a minute, you're like, that's that's actually kind of fun. It's a little bit it's a little bit niche, but it's... Yeah, I want to What was the one, one from... Um... Doctor Strange that did that. The one that gets plus one plus one when targeted by a global. That's, no, that's uh, Jessica, Jones Jessica Jones from Defenders. Interestingly, Defenders. Like, I used to be a huge fan of that. With a oh, it's uh, so uh, I guess the night. I guess the primary aggressor doesn't target. She doesn't no, target. Doesn't. So Jessica Jones gets plus one attack and plus one defense whenever one of your character dice is targeted by a global ability. Slap on proton yeah. cannon and cone of cold with yeah. a force block. Yeah, that Very never fun. really made it as big a splash as it maybe could have. Yeah. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what this Clayface does. It was a fun B-level card. I think Clayface could be an interesting surprise. A lot of people aren't going to be ready for that. That's great. They're not going to be ready for it, but it's it's solid tier three material. It's not it's not meta, but it, it's going to be. I couldn't fun get over the field it, the stats on it. I was like that 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 wasn't the stats on it before. But yeah, <laughs> one one one. Yeah. Fielding. Yeah. Wow. Interestingly enough, yeah, it's interesting to hear. Apart from that last card, which is definitely not the most optimum card. Like Lucan was all about the win conditions, whereas mine. Mine was a bit more um, utility-based. Right. I, I chose a couple other ones, too, that I think are just going to be kind of fun. They're not necessarily, you know, the greatest cards in the world. But, like, if you're going to be drafting this set, which I think might be worth it if people, especially with people, you know, complaining about the die count, we're going to try to draft it here. And I'm thinking about posting a link about how we're going to draft if people are curious about maybe doing, replicating that idea somewhere else. But one of the cards I thought was going to be a really good draft card was good old Negative Man, the one that has Deadly and Fast. Just because of his stats, I mean, those are two really good abilities. And if you pair that with the new uh, Bizarro, which is basically the new Kal-El Global inset, you can be attacking with that guy and flipping him. And, you know, he's got seven attack coming at you with, with, fast, with fast and Deadly. So I, I think he'll be sneaky good, just in terms of real basic meat and potatoes in your face kind of a card one of the ones that i got really excited about and then i realized uh this doesn't really quite work was the aquaman where you gain two life if a character die moves from your reserve pool to the use pile at the end of your main step and i was thinking oh wow this actually could make life gain really good but then when i really bothered to look at it closely it was like it has to be a character die it can't be a sidekick die so you know you couldn't do a lot of shenanigans with ring with the uh for an underseen mm-hmm. ring or something i was thinking for a while there you could practically gain two life and or more every turn but uh the more i looked at him the more i thought yeah that was a get excited and then fizzle card but the other atlantis there was an atlantis with uh, one of the with the new global the four cost atlantis vast kingdom yeah i think there's a lot of fun shenanigans to be had with that card um and i'm looking forward to building around that i just think Anytime, you know, Phoenix Storm jumps to mind when I read that card. And I love playing Phoenix Storm. So Me too. Uh, I'm excited about that card. I think there's uh, just some fun, fun, fun shenanigans to be had with that card. I really like the Global. Yeah, and the Global's great too. It's basically Star Labs with some different energy. So lots to be had in the set. I'm excited about the set. How about you? Yeah, Did no, yeah, I, think it's, I, I, I think it's really good. Oh, I didn't um, talk about Gorilla Grodd. Yeah, yeah that, that was the one that cool. I really wanted to talk all about. All the Gorilla Grods. All the Gorilla Grods. But I really want to try. One of the first things out of the gate is his uh, You Can't Fight Me. While Gorilla Grodd is active, all character dice must attack each turn. 
mm-hmm. your character dice get plus one A while attacking. Reminds me of that old Spectre from War of Light. Yeah, I used to love that Spectre. I actually ran that in a WKA team. Yeah, so fun. I mean, it's just, it's so disruptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was thinking of pairing it with Taliel Ghoul, the one that says, well, she's active, the flip one that okay. says, so basically, you you just let everybody else run through from their team. You wait until you've built up, and that is cool. So I think that would be a good combo. And and for clarification, Talia Algul says on one face, uh, while Talia Algul is active, your non-villain character dice may not attack. And on the other face, it says while Talia Algul is active, your villain character dice may not attack. So, so you so you build the villain teams with it with this. And yeah, just... another way, fun way. I mean, it's a bit expensive, but you could use this with a collector team as well. For sure. So you, I guess, you could collector in the Gorilla Grod, make all your opponents' characters attack, or you could just collector in the Talialgul as well. Right. Well, I was thinking about putting out like this could be really good with something that just eats damage. You know, like maybe I was thinking maybe the the uncommon Lex Luthor, Kansas yep. native, yep. and so you know you just you know come on come on through you know Bizarro or any other big thing, and I'll I'll just take one damage for that. and they're going to used yeah i think it's pretty good with the phantom stranger that i was talking about earlier as well for sure yeah yeah i think all the really cards are fantastic all right let's get on to our next segment we're going to call this one breaking it down today's card is going to be create food and water also known as cake and uh lucan you want to read it out to us real quick it's a three cost so the ability is draw dice from your bag until you draw a non-npc die or your bag is empty. Prep all dice drawn this way. And it has the global, pay one, generic, once per turn, draw a die from your bag, uh, return it to your bag, or add it to your use pile. The action's pretty good, but uh, the global is better. So take it away, Ben. You're the you're the master here. Yeah, I think it's the best basic action in the game. Uh, it just offers so much utility. Uh, the actual action itself is actually pretty underrated i think if you buy it that turn one or two uh, you can prep a ton of dice turn three before we move on to the global when would you actually want to buy the die itself and how can you take advantage of it so it doesn't become a liability in your bag later in the game i mean russell love always talked about playing this with collector and never buying more than one and keeping a lean bag did you find that to be true too yeah so i think there's a couple of instances in which it can be good the first one i think is like russell talks about if you have a really lean team where the object is to basically have nothing but sidekicks in your bag Mm -hmm. uh, and this die then every time you play you're going to be drawing sidekicks right so if we have a collector team where the object is generally to get your control pieces out and leave them in the field and leave collector in the field and then you're not buying too many dice you're spending your energy fielding characters with collector and those dice never end up in your bag because you're just renting them for a turn right? yeah yeah and then if you do stuff like it i think with chalkboard is quite good as well because chalkboard is all everything you're buying is going straight to the prep area so you're not really ever seeing it in your bag is there a way you handle it in terms of you know it's one of those ones that it has uh, the global built into the car that helps it in terms of if you have an empty bag you're use able global, to yeah. use the global to get something. I, I always felt like when I play this thing, I want to have that pyro global too, just to clear out my bag so I can refill my bag if I needed it. Yeah, so the second way, and probably the best way to use this, is if you're trying to buy a big character on turn four, if you really need a really big cost character, this is a great one to use. Because if you manipulate it with the global, you can basically prep five dice so you roll nine dice altogether. One thing that occurred to me when we got all the new cards from Justice Spoiled 
uh, with the new stretch action die, you play that, you just pick and choose all the sidekicks out of your use pile and put them in your bag. If you have cake in your reserve pool, you just play that, pull all the all the sidekicks out of your bag and drop them in your prep area if your bag's empty. Yeah, yeah for sure. That'll be interesting. I I feel like that global is very similar to the cake global. I don't know. Or uh, not the stretch global, the stretch action die itself. Ah, okay, yeah. So I think both those globals work kind of similarly. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they work in tandem. There's also, um, is it a... Is it an Atlantis, which you kind of take all the sidekicks and put them in your used and keep yeah. just your yeah. actual dice? So that could work quite well. You take all the sidekicks out, put them in used. I don't know how viable this is to work it out perfectly, but then if you just have sidekicks, you can fill your bag with them and then prep them more. So you can, if you time it right, get like six, five or six dice prepped. Yeah. I mean, the problem with that is you need Atlantis, which is a four-cost cake, which yeah. is a three-cost. Yeah, you need something like a Thor or Red Dragon global. Yeah. Well, I've had problems with cake occasionally where I'm actually taking bag burn with it too, you know, <laughs> because it just empties out everything so much. Suddenly you're like, oh, I've got two dice left. Okay, I'm going to take two, which may be great, but bag burn is sometimes never a later in the game, it can be an issue. You know, you just don't play it or, you know, something like it's an interesting die in terms of it. It causes unique interactions in the game. For sure. And it's, it's very difficult to set up that big kind of pool with create food and water. It's very uh, technical. Can you talk about that real quickly for somebody who's, who's new to playing this card? Uh, how, how would you go about playing this in terms of turn order? If you went first or second and how, when would you buy cake and how would you set it all up just to hit that huge turn? Yeah. So the important thing is from your original four dice, the first mm-hmm. turn, you effectively need only four dice going in to turn three. And that's the tricky part. So you need to get a sidekick or have a way of making a sidekick that first turn. Mm -hmm. And then the important other thing is to not buy anything on turn two. Or if you do, you have to get very lucky with your bag pool. But if you set it up right, you can take a die out of that first four. So you have the create food and water and three sidekicks. Okay. And that's the ideal. You want that at some point in turn two. So whether you buy create food and water turn one and then field a sidekick or you waste all your energy turn one, field a sidekick, and then by create food and water turn two. Then what you want to do is use a create food and water global to put those four dice into your bag. So you have three sidekicks and a create food and water. Then the next thing is to get as many of your sidekicks into your use pile as possible for the end of that turn. So either attack with all your sidekicks or spin your sidekick down some way and put it into use that way by spending it. Okay. But again, you don't want to spend it on actual die because then you are increasing the probability that you're going to wreck your food and water (laughs) yeah i guess the ideal thing to do is turn one and two both by create food and water and somehow feel two psychics in that process as well right it's the ideal thing to do so you roll on turn three you're rolling two create food and waters and some other energy then you can use one of the create food and water levels to put those six psychics in your bag and then you pull them all out with one of the dice and put them all in your prep area it seems like another one that could be great with momentum too, right? Yeah, yeah. The If you needed all those sidekicks on one turn, all that energy. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Yeah, actually, so maybe you could do it. Um, maybe you can get it going turn three somehow. Turn three somehow, yeah, because then you'd be able to get eight energy, I think, on turn three. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. But it's all about manipulating the global, so, and it's a bit like Resurrection Ring where you had to have four rather than five all the time, and that's a bit harder to do. Right. Well, speaking of the global, let's get into it. <laughs> global is very good with mimic ramp because of what i was talking about earlier where you can take a die out and actually put it straight into the use pile a sidekick and then you can make a sidekick straight away but sending dice to the use pile is just a very very good trick in general it can be paired with stuff like misdirection or nowhere where you can use the dice that you put out to swap in and out 
doesn't necessarily have to be a sidekick. But it's also good churn, uh, which is a very important part of the game that people people seem to favor ramp over churn, mm-hmm. uh, I think, in general. But I, I think churn is more important, actually. And it kind of does what Ring Res did just by itself. Because you can do it on your opponent's turn as well as your turn, taking out the dice and manipulating your bag so you have only four dice in, so you know exactly what you're getting, is really important. And kind of making that choice of, do I send a dice that is okay so you might get like an action dice you kind of want but not really it's not that useful put it in the used right then your bag guarantee what you want what do you see people making the biggest mistakes when playing this card not using the ability to put a dice back in your bag people are very reluctant when they take a die out to put it back in their bag right and like we were talking about earlier it's just vital to be able to estimate what you're doing so don't just throw a die away even if it's a sidekick maybe sometimes you want to put it back in just so you know that you're going to get these four dice or even if you have eight dice in put it back in if you have a multiple of four just know where your bag is going to flow and people often just sacrifice get rid of a sidekick out of their bag just to clear it out of their bag and that's the biggest mistake people make got it any cards this pair is super well with other than than mimic uh, any i think it just is re- works really well with any kind of ramp mm-hmm. uh, also works very well with heimdall global one thing i saw when we were playing the uh, vibranium shield team a few years back mm-hmm. the big struggle to get alfred to go off was always having a sidekick in the use pile this works perfectly mm-hmm. with that so i you know we we had a really hard time we were we were playing the uh, dark side global to get a sidekick over there and you were praying that you drew a sidekick to put it in there but now yeah. with cake it's much easier so if you ever if you were ever curious about playing that uh, vibranium shield team or any kind of alfred team that relies on having a sidekick there to for him to re-roll it's a incredible global for that yeah i mean anything where you you need to rely on having a die in your use mm-hmm. it's i think it's it, i can't think of another way to send a die to your use pile on demand yeah was there um was there a, a nobby was the nobby global did that do it at one point in time no 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 it did no, no, it, no, it, no just it was KO'd, yeah. it was just ko and yeah. then uh no it was the slifer global from um yeah that Yu-Gi-Oh, was a, the yeah. super rare slifer it had this global that was like pay a bolt and then move a sidekick from your pep error to your use pile and deal one damage to target player or something yeah, like that. Do, yeah. yeah, you can move as many sidekicks as you wanted or something. I knew it was a bolt global from way back then, but yeah, okay, cool. Okay. Is there any cards that, that you see on the other side of the board that think, oh boy, this is going to wreck cake? Not really. Okay. Very good. Well, if, if you haven't played with cake, I suggest uh, give it a try and, and really try some of these techniques out because I think it's will really help your bag management skills. If Tabaxi Rogue, I guess, that yeah. global. If, if you had the die, if you buy the die, Tabaxi Rogue could really... Yeah, but also it. the global can mess up. Sure. If you're very precise, Tabaxi Rogue is just very mm-hmm. good. The global is very good against any kind of ramp or churn because it messes up the preciseness bag. of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. We'll, we'll talk that technique in some other... We've run out of time, but we'll talk that technique in some other episode. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get on to our next segment, and we're calling this one Hall of Fame. All right, Ben, so we asked you to select a player. Um, oh, you know what? I didn't tell you. I think usually we're talking about somebody usually who's retired or semi-retired, but I believe this player that you chose fits this qualification. So I, I, I hand it over to you. Who are you selecting for our Dice Masters Hall of Fame? Uh, I'm choosing Russell Love, uh, who's also known as the Care King. Awesome. Um, yeah, he's a he's a really cool guy. We talked a bit on the social medias. 
and he paid me to nominate him. Um, <laughs> no, he's. A, I, I just love his team builds. I think doing a lot of what I was talking about earlier with playing with lots of different cards, he is like the, the guy who does this. He'll take and defend on the Double Burst podcast. For sure. So they'll bring up a card and be like, oh, no, this card is pretty bad. And then he'll be like, no, 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 if you do this and this and this and this and this, it's good. Right. And I'm all about that mantra. Like, I really want that Super Air Hulk <laughs> to be good. And it is okay in a very certain situation. Right. But I'm all, I love teams like that and he was a really good team builder as well for sure he did lack win conditions so i, I joked to him that my team building method is listen to dull burst take a ko king team and then put a win condition in it <laughs> yeah i always love listening to him and really he got your mind going in terms of thinking of the alternate way to think about playing and playing cards in a way that you never saw like he reminded me you know when i was a kid i always had stuffed animals who mm -hmm. I felt bad for because I never got played with, or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And uh, you know, he, the way he talked about cards was sort of that way. Uh, yeah, clearly had a love for the game, which is great. But I, I, I've got to say, Kyo King did like champion some bizarre cards that weren't very good. But I mean, Scarecrow oh. right now, I'm telling you, that card is unbelievably broken and golden. Oh, for sure so good it's crazy strong so fun so many fun combos to play with him yeah all right uh well thank you thank you for that nomination i think that's great uh ko king you have now been nominated to the hall of fame what are your three favorite combat tricks i want to go from least favorite to favorite okay so nowhere rare mm. is a really fun combat trick this is also combines with misdirection but basically the idea is to attack with something and then swap in something else. Right. Classic example is the Madam Web, Adam Warlock combo. Yeah, so mean. Madam Web forced everything to block. Then you know it out Madam Web for the Adam Warlock that when KOs, it captures everything that KO'd it. So you capture basically their whole field and just leave it on their card. Uh, super fun, <laughs> but you can also do stuff like um, Zach from Dice Masters with James and Zach was the Jarvis Fix-It combo. So you make Jarvis unblockable with Insect Plague and then swap into Fix-It. Oof. Um, that's really good <laughs> but yeah just being able to pull that kind of threat of i'm swapping in something you don't expect me to swap in yeah forces them to block really awkwardly most of the time but when it's unblockable <laughs> like that jarvis that's pretty cool yeah it's really it's really strong the second one is kind of manipulating your attack step to get around bad blocks the main reason this comes up is because on my gold dragon team one of the important things was if I did roll a character face on Gold Dragon, and at the same time, Ring of Winter, I always felt terrible about paying the fielding cost for Gold Dragon. But there's a cool combat trick where as soon as you enter the attack step, mm -hmm. any character dice on character faces go straight to the used. Yep. So what you could do is attack with a sidekick, send the Gold Dragon that you don't want to pay three energy to field into the used pile, and then during the globals and action dice portion of the combat, you could use the Ring of Winter to bring the Gold Dragon in. Yeah, uh, It wouldn't be attacking, but it would be in the field. Mm -hmm. And now you suddenly had a three-cost discount. Right. But along with this, say they had a Hulk or something, but you still want to do this, you could attack with a sidekick. They would block disadvantageously for you as best they can. Uh, so say with Hulk, they block with something that's going to take damage and do damage to you. Right. You can use the Billy Club or any kind of energy fixer to spin down yeah. the sidekick you attacked with. So effectively, they're no longer attacking and you skip any damage dealt. And it's kind of a fun way to get around, especially if you have a bunch of psychics in the field as well. And you attack with a bunch and they're letting something through that you were like, oh, I was hoping they'd block that. 
well, you can spin it down, and now you just get the sidekick back with Professor X. Right. Cool. Very clever. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun to mess around with. Um, that's kind of one of the difficult things to think about in gameplay, which if you test it, if you just set up a bunch of combat scenarios and then work out if I attack with this die, what are they going to block with? Oh, that's a good way to practice as well. Interesting. That's cool. And then my favorite thing is Splinter's Teachings, which is, I think, a standard, yeah. pretty yeah. obvious combat trick. That was in the last puzzle. <laughs> yeah, I saw that, and uh, I think I've worked it out, but I haven't sent you guys it. Um, anyway, yeah, Splinter's Teachings is just a, uh, an amazing global. Um, very fun, especially on a collector team, I found. Oh, great. Where you're generally getting a larger field than they are, the yep. collector. Yeah, you seem like a guy who likes to have field control. It seems like Splinter's yeah, Teachings yeah, is a natural... Definitely. It's kind of like if you want to be semi, if you want to have the option to switch to aggressive play, but want the protection of something like a Kate Bishop, mm-hmm. this is kind of a good middle ground where it's yeah. an effective defensive dice, but it's also a very effective attacking dice. Yeah. And it's the kind of global, like if you want to suddenly become better as a player, just practice with that card for a long time. Yeah. You'll get better. Sure. You know? <laughs> All right. And then the last thing we want to talk about with you before we let you go is let's let's talk about when time is called. You know, I think a lot of players don't really have a plan going into a big tournament about what they're going to do if turns are called. Uh, is that something you consider when you team build? And like, what are your basic thoughts on, on turn strategy? Do you know about what happened with me and Andy England in UK Nats 2018? I do not. I'd, I'd love to hear about it. Where we had kind of, uh, not really, we had a, an almost stand-up argument, and I said some very rude words to the TO <laughs> about when time should actually be called. <laughs> oh, I, I, oh, I've heard him mention this on side. I didn't yeah. know that was you. Okay, yeah, was, turn, yeah. this is the whole turn zero issue. Okay. Turn zero, when is turn zero? <laughs> when, when I pass the turn or when my opponent starts to do their turn? Right. Yep. Here it's um, always been when time is called. That's turn zero. Whoever's going when time's called is turn zero. Here, I don't know if that's exactly. not exactly. If you finish your turn, that's the end of your turn and the beginning of the next person's turn. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, time. I, I I find time very difficult. Most of the time, my teams aren't set up to win quickly. They're set up to win consistently. Right. So. One of the games I lost at Canna, it might be the only game I lost at Canna. Actually, it was the only game I lost at Canadian Nats, was because we went to time. It was one game each, and the last game was just the five turn team right. game. And he had a Yanti Super Rare, and I had a Gold Dragon. And the chances of me getting right. Gold Dragon out in three turns, not very high. But the chances of him buying one action dice with a Yanti and Pseudo Dragon in the field, it's pretty good. Any general tips but or strategies you would, you would employ? You when... should have an idea of how to do damage. Even if it's something as basic as you're only going to get to buy two dice, what two dice can do the most damage on your team? You should always be thinking about something like this. Um, even if it's something as basic as just I'm going to buy two magic missiles. Yep. So one one card like an example that'd be really good for this would be like Jubilee, for example. You can put her out there quickly and deal damage quickly. Except when you get that level three fielding phase. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think it's important to plan for, but most of the time, if you set up your team. Properly, you shouldn't go to time, mm-hmm. especially in really high-level competitive play, which is where turns are most common. Yep. Because most of those teams run very efficiently, and you shouldn't go that long. It's interesting. Although though, it does happen, I guess. Yeah, so it's funny because a lot of the teams, you know, people who build these really hard control villain teams, it's not unusual for them to go to turns. But then when they end up in turns, they don't have yeah, that quick. Yeah, they're not good in turns. So. I mean, can you think of any uh, specific examples of a great turn play that, that stand out in your memory that either you were part of or, or you've seen, you've witnessed? Well, I guess Yanti is the obvious one just because, I mean, Yanti is such a great team because it's very flexible. You can win early, you can win late, you can win in, in the turns. middle, you can set up 
however you want. You can set up aggressively, you can set up defensively. Mm-hmm. But what did I'm trying to think what Andy did against me? He uh, was running a dum dum psychic team, which is awesome. Spider Man. Yeah. Make sure you roll for as many psychics as possible. Yep. That's the key. Get them out. Get some blocks out. Yeah, I, I might just roll everything twice just yep. because getting psychics out is more important. And having a two cost in turn seems to be important. Yes. Right? I mean, having a two cost. I would never build a team without a two cost, especially with the turn one, the way it is now with only three dice. Having a two cost option is vital. Well, all right, Ben, I think that wraps it up. Anything else you want to add before we wrap her up today? Um, I'd just like to say that uh, as lovely as both of you are, um, I'm very, very mad about not beating you both. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you'll have another opportunity. (laughs) Oh, most definitely. I'm coming for you guys. Oh, okay. Well, you know, that's why, <laughs> that's why, that's why it's hard to be on the top of the hill, man. Everybody's yeah, coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, actually, Ben, I share your sentiment. Exactly. <laughs> I exactly. want to beat him in a setting that matters. They are calling definitely... me El Segundo now, which means the second. <laughs> All right. So we're back with the next edition of the puzzle. And we're making some improvements. After some careful analysis of listener feedback, we realized that everyone goes to the website anyway. So instead of reading out the whole game state, we're just going to set the dramatic stage and then direct you to rollandthunder.xyz forward slash puzzle for the visual details. Also, we want to give a shout out to Shadowmeld, who caught a small error in our puzzle when our website went up before we were quite ready for it. It's patched up now. Thank you, Shadowmeld. But apologies to anyone who is overpuzzled by our impossible puzzle. So, here's this episode's scenario. Poor Kate Bishop, young Avenger. Everyone is mocking her, so we've decided to put her bow and arrow to good use against that team you hate to see at your local game store. You know that one with rare blob, rare dwarf wizard intrigue, sonic beam, designed to make you miserable? Yeah, that one. Can Kate Bishop, with the help of her pals Earth-X Thor, Luke Cage, and Silver Surfer, Unlock the lockdown and find a path to victory? Visit rollandthunder.xyz forward slash puzzle to see if you're up to the challenge. Okay, time for a warning. If you haven't solved last week's puzzle, you might want to fast forward a couple minutes because there are spoilers ahead. Before we get to the solution, we'd like to thank everyone who participated in the puzzle, especially Craig Hubner, whose answer made us laugh. Now, on to episode one super sleuth. First in line, the incomparable Mr. Paul Kushner. And here is his answer. Energy fix both sidekicks, one to a mask using Billy Club's global, and one to a fist using Gorilla Grodd's global. Field Hawkeye for free. KO Hawkeye and deal all four damage to Shriek, KOing her. Pay a mask to Field Storm and using her ability, spend the opponent's wild energy to a bolt. Use a shield on Kal-El global to make Lex 5-1. Use a shield on Splinter's teachings to swap Lex's 5 attack with Storm's 3 attack. Ping off Lex with a bolt using the magic missile global after stat swapping. Pay a fist on Haymaker to make Storm 6-3. Swing with Storm on an empty field for the victory. Once again, you can find both puzzles at rollandthunder.xyz forward slash puzzle. Alright folks, get your answers in for that puzzle. And stay tuned for next episode when we have a very special guest puzzle master with an entry to bamboozle us all. So that about wraps it up. 
If you're interested in participating in one big weekend, email us at arj at rollinthunder.xyz or lucan at rollinthunder.xyz. Keep smiling, keep rolling, and see you in a fortnight's time. Slan. Well, that's the end of Turn 5, my friends, and it's time for the final clear. We hoped you enjoyed today's show. You can find us at rollinthunder.xyz, without a G or an apostrophe, where you'll discover all the links necessary to listen or subscribe to the show. You can also reach us by email at arge or lucan at rollinthunder.xyz. Our theme music was created by Jesse Weiner. We're in no way affiliated with WizKids, other than we love and celebrate the game of Dice Masters. So keep on rolling, August Narlagajia the Lao. We'll be talking again in two weeks' time with another guest. So stay tuned, enough said.